0: On a wintry December, a woman clothed in white fled from Oxford Castle. Besieged by her enemies, she took the opportunity of a snowstorm to move undetected through their siege lines and down the frozen Thames to safety. This is the most famous incident in the life of Matilda, Empress and Queen of England, featured in countless English stories and legends. But Matilda is much more than that daring escape. She was the daughter of Henry I of England, the granddaughter of William the Conqueror betrothed to the emperor henry at the age of eight she had lived in germany and italy until the death of her husband though she retained the title of empress until her death her father made her his heir and that escape from oxford castle was an incident in the war that she waged to maintain her kingdom she would live to see her son henry take the throne and create a kingdom that dominated both the british isles and france with me to discuss one of the most remarkable yet sadly forgotten women of the middle ages or any other age is catherine hanley author of Matilda, Empress, Queen, and Warrior. Catherine is a medieval historian, a novelist, and has also written extensively on cricket for, among other publications, Wisden. Catherine Hanley, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, this is very exciting because uh, Matilda is, as I said, I think she's one of the most fascinating people people in the Middle Ages uh, and certainly one of the most uh, fascinating uh, women in European western history i I, mm-hmm. I think you would agree i uh, certainly would yeah and yet uh you if you asked even uh, probably a set of oxford and cambridge undergraduates about her there'd be crickets um they might remember the the oxford castle thing so uh before we get to it um what sort of sources do you have to uh, use to reconstruct Matilda's life? When, when is her life and what are the problems in trying to reconstruct it?
1: Okay, so um, just to, to give you the, the basic dates, Matilda was born in the year 1102 and she died in 1167. So we're talking about the first half of the 12th century. And in terms of sources, um, the, the basic answer to that is not as many as I would like. <laughs>
0: um
1: so we have a number of uh what you might call kind of factual pieces of evidence so we have things like charters and we have things like grants and they're very useful in creating a sort of skeleton outline because any any charter or or grant that was agreed by somebody will have a date and a place on it and and it will have the names of the people who were present as witnesses. So that gives us a sort of um, an idea when when Matilda appears on those of where she was and when. Mm -hmm. But of course, you can't reconstruct somebody's life story just out of knowing that they were in such a place on such a date. We we have to look at other sources. And um, the main way that I was able to do that is in looking at chronicles. So the 12th century was a great age for historical writing in England and in France, and there are lots of um, wonderful texts that that we can read, but we have to be careful when reading those chronicles to remember that the the author of each of them had his, and I I say his deliberately because they were all men, had his own biases. OK, so we can't just take these chronicles as a factual account of, of what happened. We, we have to realise that everybody has their own agenda. Um, and other than that, I mean, that's pretty much it for sources. There are a couple of letters that survive from the very end of Matilda's life back in the 1160s. But other than that, what we don't have is any of her own words We don't have diaries, we don't have letters, we don't have anything like that. So I had to work around all these sources to basically tell Matilda's story by looking at what other people said about her rather than what she said about herself.
0: Just to to go back to the Chronicles, the Chronicle is a um, very strange for us combination of sort of um, almanac, history, and sometimes journal of a a monk or perhaps a cathedral scholars, uh, what's going on in his lifetime?
1: Yes, that's right. So um, virtually all of the people who wrote these, they were all men, and and they were virtually all clerical men, so monks, priests. Um, So this meant that, you know, they perhaps didn't have a great deal of experience about the outside world and they might have been relying on second-hand reports. So, for example, if they describe a battle, it's entirely probable that they weren't there themselves, but they're writing down what other people said about it. Um, um, and they also particularly didn't come into contact with very many women, mm-hmm. which is, is an issue when you're trying to write a biography of what of, of a woman based on what they're saying about her.
0: Yeah, they, they, um, it's... For certain that, um, well, a number of them, but one in particular, they are definitely women haters. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's talk about. It. She's born twenty five years after the conquest. Mm-hmm. Um. Her grandfather is William the Conqueror, William of Normandy. Yeah. Um. What is we tend to use the terms Britain and France, sort of. You know, we just throw that. We just sort of impose them on the world of eleven o one, but. Things are a lot more complicated than that. So let's have a brief, brisk sketch of sort of Western Europe uh, at the time of in Matilda's, you know, first 25 years.
1: OK, so, yeah, as you say, we do use the word Britain a lot. But in the early 12th century, Britain was um, not a single entity, not even vaguely. Um, England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland were all different kingdoms or prin- or, and principalities, and, and even within those kingdoms, they, they sometimes weren't terribly unified anyway. So we can talk about England, um, but not necessarily about Britain, because Britain just wasn't really a concept. And similarly in France, you know, we tend to think of France, yeah, big country, um, oh. powerful king, but at the time, although the king of France was the nominal overlord of the various large territories in France, like Normandy and Aquitaine and, you know, all the other ones you read about in history books, he actually only exercised direct control over quite a small area sort of centred around Paris. And there wasn't really a sense of what you might now call national identity um, in, in at the very start of the 12th century in, in France. It was just this very loose, collection of different lands who owed nominal overlordship to the king. Um, The other geographical area, which is very important in Matilda's story, is the Empire. Now we now generally call that the Holy Roman Empire, and that's how I think most people know it, but at the time it was just called the Empire. Mm. Um, And that covered um, Germany and the northern half of Italy all in one dominionship, And when I say Germany, Germany was was much bigger then, and that also included what we would now call the Netherlands. Uh Um, So that is a vast realm for one man to rule. I mean, if you think of the travel times between the Netherlands and Italy, um, when the fastest way you can travel is on a horseback, that is a very large area. So the emperor had his work cut out trying to control all those different parts of his his empire at once.
0: Yeah, and the life of most emperors is a, a continual, uh, futile attempt to do just that. Um, yes,
1: yeah, they're sort of just traveling around the empire firefighting, yes, if you exact. like. Th- yes,
0: yeah. exactly what I was thinking, putting out brush yeah. fires, um, and sometimes really large ones, really large um, fires. Mm. Um, f- few emperors uh, died in peace. Uh, yeah. So matilda is um what's her family situation like i mean her uh, grandfather is uh, one of the notable tough cookies of the middle ages and Mm -hmm. uh, her father is a chip off that old um you know piece of dough to continue Mm -hmm. to continue that metaphor beyond where i should um what's uh what's her childhood like that we know of
1: okay so um as i said she was born in um 1102 at which point her father was already the king now to give some background about the situation in England and, and why it's complicated, Henry I, M- Matilda's father, um, was actually William the Conqueror's youngest son. Okay, mm-hmm. He actually has, although he's the King of England, he has a living older brother who is called Robert Kurthose um, And Robert Kurthose uh, also goes on to have a son who's, who's almost the same age as Matilda called William Cleto. So all through Matilda's childhood, although her father is the king, there is this kind of looming threat that, you know, if he ever does anything wrong or something goes wrong with them, people will start saying, well, actually, he shouldn't really be the king in the first place because he's got this this brother and this nephew. Um, but, you know, H- Henry is a is a pretty tough cookie. I don't think he'd probably appreciate me calling him mm-hmm. that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he was. So he's pretty much got England un- under his control now in order to cement an alliance he is married to a lady who confusingly is referred to as both edith and matilda so i tend to call her edith matilda just because <laughs> everyone else is called matilda and it's very confusing um and she is uh, the daughter of the malcolm canmore who is the king of scotland okay as we said scotland separate kingdom um, but what's interesting about Edith Matilda is that, as as well as being the daughter of the King of Scotland, is that she's also descended from the ancient Anglo-Saxon royal family. Hmm. So Matilda, our Matilda, um, and her brother, who comes along, William, who comes along a year later, he's a year younger than her, have these multiple lines of royal descent. They're descended from William the Conqueror, they're descended from the Celtic kings of Scotland, they're descended from the Anglo-Saxon royal line, you know, you couldn't really... Get more royal uh-huh. um, than what they are. So, um, Matilda well, is the elder of um, these two children. And um, of course, to start with, she was quite important. She was the king's only child. But of course, her importance waned quite dramatically at the birth of a son um, a, the, a year after. So, the path that's going to be mapped out for her is that she's going to be a queen consort because that's what king's daughters were. They were, you know, parceled up, sent abroad um, to make strategic alliances. They didn't have any choice at all in who it was they would marry. Um, And so King Henry um, decides, because he's, you know, a little bit suspicious of uh, France, which we'll come back to in a bit, Mm. he decides that the best um, person to make an alliance with is the emperor. The emperor is obviously... um, in charge of this huge and powerful realm and this works for everyone okay king henry everyone in the story is also called henry by the way um i I refer to them as king henry and emperor henry because it gets confusing otherwise um this works for everyone king henry gets an alliance with um the very powerful empire and emperor henry gets a massive pile of cash um because he's a bit broke from all these you know these sort of minor conflicts and firefighting and everything that he's doing so um he gets the daughter of the king of england plus a very large dowry
0: it's a really a a stupendously large dowry i mean it really is extraordinary
1: yeah um Um, but i mean that's the big picture mm -hmm. but you know writing a biography of an individual let's think about the little picture as well okay matilda was sent abroad from england to germany to to be betrothed to, to this man that she'd never met when she was just past her eighth birthday. Okay, I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah. You know, I've, my youngest daughter isn't much older than that, and it, it just makes me feel sick, yeah. <laughs> actually, Um, just just thinking about that. But, you know, this is the sort of experience that we recognise now can traumatise a child. But back then, it was like, you know, you're the king's daughter. Shut up and get on with it. Yeah. Um, and,
0: and she um, and they um, believe that the Emperor or his court sends back the people that she has brought with her.
1: That's right, yeah. They, so, when she arrived obviously with some companions and, and advisors from uh, King Henry's court, but the Emperor um, wanted her to become, you know immersed in the Empire and become as German as possible. So pretty much as soon as she got there, he, he sent them all back. Mm-hmm. And, of course, not not only is she only eight years old, but she's now in a foreign-speaking country. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, what must have been going through her mind. And, and there's a possibility, you know, that that would... You know, you would just kind of give up and collapse in tears, you know. Mm-hmm. But apparently, from all the evidence, from what evidence we can reconstruct, she really didn't. You know, she... She took it all on. She she learned, she knuckled down, she learned the language, she learned the court etiquette, she learned the politics, she learned the government. You know, she was going to be the empress, the wife of the most powerful man in, in Western Europe. And she wanted to prepare herself for this adequately. And I can only admire the sort of resilience that. You know that that small child must have had
0: can we uh, back, back to a couple things just to tie off the the knots um mm-hmm. one point is is that uh, and this will become extremely important uh briefly shortly uh that there is no primogeniture really as a custom um mm-hmm. so robert Cur the eldest son did not get england um, didn't, get, didn't get everything and the second son get nothing or mm-hmm. just scraps. So it was all sort of divided equally amongst uh, William the Conqueror's sons. Is that right?
1: Yeah, um, sort of. Um, okay. So pri- or- primogeniture hadn't been um, in any way the way that kings of England were selected um, it was gaining ground in Normandy mm. so um, William the when William the Conqueror's eldest son Robert Kurthose was born his father was, was the Duke of Normandy and wasn't expected to be king of anywhere uh-huh. and so it was it was fully expected that Robert his eldest son would be the Duke of Normandy after him. But there was also a custom that although the eldest son should get what's called the patrimony, so um, the inherited lands that his father and his father before him have have had, that in order to spread things out a bit more evenly, the second son could get any additional gains. So, for example, lands that might have been brought um, into the family by marriage or lands that had been conquered. So... um, by that token, the idea of leaving of William the Conqueror leaving Normandy to his eldest son and England to his second son, William Rufus, was entirely logical. But it was unusual, to say the least, for the sort of supplementary gain to actually be bigger than the patrimony. Mm. Now, so Robert's been been heir to the, the Duchy of Normandy, but suddenly his younger brother's gonna be a king. Yeah. Um, so this is why he wasn't, you know, terribly pleased about it. And for the remainder of William Rufus's life, Ro- uh, Robert and, and William Rufus were were in conflict with each other. And Robert was still a sort of dangerous entity, if you like, when Henry came to the throne. But Henry had a couple of incredible strokes of luck, which is firstly that William Rufus died childless in this um, accident, a, a hunting accident in, in the New Forest. And at the time that that happened, Robert was miles away because he'd been on the first crusade in the Holy Land and he hadn't come back yet. And as we're going to find out later on for Matilda, geography and travel times are are very important. So Henry was able to go, all right, sorry, no other claimant for the (laughs) throne here. Um, See, you know, secure the treasury, ride for London, get crowned king. And, you know, once you've got that crown on your head, and again, this is gonna be important for Matilda, Yes. It doesn't matter who you were before, once you've got the crown on your head and you've been sanctified by this coronation ceremony, you are the king. And there's nothing that anyone else can can do about that. So by the time poor Robert arrived back from his heroics on the first crusade, his baby brother is already the king.
0: And the, the empire, um, just to make things really even more complex, the emperor yeah. ele- is elected uh, he might, yeah although I,
1: there is there is a slight danger of us getting into a circular argument about that that yeah. later on it was elective so we assume it was it was always elective no, it wasn't. the emperor Henry um Henry who was Henry V not to be confused with the English king of the same name later on Emperor Henry V um technically had been elected but he was actually the fourth direct descendant of yeah. his line to to have that empire. His father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather had all been um, emperors before him. That's so he would fully expect that if he and Matilda had a son, that his son would be the next emperor. So
0: we, we shouldn't imagine that you know the eight-year-old is being uh, married off to Henry at that age. It's not quite as weird as that, weird enough. Uh, when do they get, officially get married?
1: um they didn't officially get married until 4 years later but it's still fairly horrendous because it she is. was a, she was a couple of weeks short of her 12th birthday um when they were married and actually you know she's probably very lucky that you know she wasn't made pregnant straight away because there are various instances of royal women around Europe in the middle ages you know getting pregnant and giving birth at really horrendously young ages which was not good for their health
0: no so when did, uh, she then becomes increasingly important to the emperor? Uh, mm-hmm. How and, and at what age?
1: Um, uh, pretty soon after that. So once they were officially married and, and she had her 12th birthday, that, that was it. You know, her education, her schoolbook education, if you like, came to an end. And she left the the sort of fairly quiet town where she'd been studying for a few years. And she was then at the emperor's side wherever he travelled. And so when she was 14, she made her first trip over the Alps um, and accompanied him when he went to Rome, which must have been, you know, a fabulous experience. Um, and all the time she was at his side, you know, she was learning. She was watching him. She was watching how he governed, how he dealt with allies, how he dealt with potential enemies. And she she took this all on board. Um, and by the time she was... 16, um, the emperor actually decided to leave her for a while in Italy as his regent while he went back to Germany yeah. because he couldn't think of better hands to, to leave them in. I mean, just think about that. A 16 years <laughs> old and, you know, ruling Italy. I mean, okay, she's ruling it on behalf of her husband. Yeah. And this is another point that's going to be important later on. So people accept this rule of a woman, a girl, um, without a qualm, because she's at, she's the emperor's representative. But I mean, still, she's she's pretty good at it.
0: Yeah, it, it, given and it, you can see the benefits of having a strong queen for mm-hmm. the emperor Henry or any other emperor. Or yeah. Any other? Um, I mean, William the Conqueror benefited from a, a strong queen as well because he yes. could, he could duck back over to Normandy uh, in the it's not just the emperor has to put out a lot of fires um mm-hmm. m- most kings have to and to have someone that you trust um uh, who's a powerful woman and who's mm-hmm. able to act as regent uh, in your absence is a, is a great advantage um that uh, absolutely yeah
1: yeah and henry the first of course as well edith matilda was an extremely capable uh, regent and administrator and she she remained in england when he used to be doing trips to normandy um, and, yeah, I mean, it was exactly what every king needed. You know, m- medieval women, noble medieval women were not just sitting around doing embroidery. They were routinely expected to be capable of, of ruling, of understanding and of taking action. Um, and a queenship like kingship was Sanctified. Okay, mm-hmm. queens were crowned um, either alongside their husbands or, or sometimes after them, um, and and this was an official position. You know, the the lords chosen, but queenship only ever worked as a complement to kingship. Right. Okay, it was the queen was there to support the king. Um, and she might do that in various ways. you know, queens sometimes uh, were asked to intercede on behalf of people or they were they were representative of asking for mercy, you know, if the king had been too harsh or, or something like that. So although she had this this power and these rights or a uh, queen did, it was only ever in a subordinate position to the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not really a concept of a queen regnant um and the couple of examples that happened in europe in the um the middle ages of queens regnant they were they were basically subordinate to their husband they were the queen regnant but when they got married their husband became the king
0: mm-hmm. yeah um which is i mean even we can see this moving well forward to elizabeth the first we can see the um the no doubt undoubtedly the reason why she does not want to marry is mm-hmm. because the realization that uh do what whatever she might do, her husband will be regarded as more powerful than she.
1: Yes, exactly. The word queen, um, certainly in the 12th century and and probably up to, up up to and including the, the 15th or 16th, the word queen means the wife of the king. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't imply ruling authority. <clears throat> I mean, even now, the word queen, um, is is normally qualified. You know, we speak now as we just have been doing of the a queen regnant or a queen consort or a queen mother, whereas you don't do that with the word king. Uh
0: -uh. No, you don't. don't. Um, And Um, another point to, uh, I think, to make is, uh, to emphasize is that point that the uh, queenship, uh, arguably, even by Matilda's time, uh, queens are more important than they will be later in the Middle Ages. Uh, Yes. As the machinery of administration becomes more complex, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a way in which... um, it's always seemed to me that queens occupied in 1000 or earlier, the position that a chamberlain will occupy later in the king's mm-hmm. court. And there's, um, I mean, you can get all very mythical about this, but in Beowulf, the queen uh, is the one who gives out the treasure and the mm-hmm. treasure chest is kept beneath her bed or their bed. And I think mm-hmm. that gets us back to queenship being the power of the queen is is in the bed. Um, mm-hmm. It comes from the bedroom. Um,
1: she it, has direct Personal access to the king in a way that nobody else exactly. has. Yes,
0: yeah. yes. Um, and you know, court ceremony will later try to give people that access, um, and queens get cut out of that in a way. Um, mm-hmm. But again, that access is what makes them a queen, and mm-hmm. being a queen regnant is how can you? Where's the power come from if there's no king? It's just it's sort of you know trying to square the circle. It's yes. uh, it's asking how yellow has weight. Uh, mm-hmm. For someone in in the in the Middle Ages, um, so how long is um, she she Empress how, to what age? Uh,
1: so she uh, Emperor Henry uh, died in eleven twenty five. At okay. which point Matilda was only twenty three years old, although she'd already been in Germany fifteen years by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she's now a, a childless widow of twenty three. So there's all kinds of potential options there. You know, 23 is a bit early to be thinking about retiring to a convent, yeah. um, which is what some other queens and empresses dowager had, had done. Um, but, you know, what is she supposed to do? Marrying anyone after the emperor is going to be a bit of a come down. <laughs> um, there were various offers, you know, for her hand from other German nobles, because she was actually very popular in Germany. She was known as the good Matilda in in germany um um, and because her you know when she ruled on behalf of her husband she was fair and you know she interceded and 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 everyone liked her so they actually wanted to try and keep her in the empire um but as we will find out in a minute when we go back to what's been happening in england um she actually had other options available Mm
0: -hmm. um why did she keep on referring to herself as empress till she died
1: um Partly, um, the titles king, queen, emperor, empress, they are lifelong. Once you have been crowned and sanctified, you know, because you're anointed as well as being crowned. And it's it's like a religious ceremony. It's not just a civil ceremony. Here's the crown. It's it's an overtly religious ceremony as well. And it it marks you out as being one of uh, God's chosen. And that can't be taken away. Mm-hmm. So once you once you have been crowned, you um, you know you continue to have that title for the rest of your life. And you know, frankly, if you're called Empress, it's not really a title you're going to want to give up, is no, it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's not.
1: Um, and she she referred to herself um, on at this point on documents and um, on on seals and things like that as um, uh, Matilda Empress and daughter of the King of England. So she's emphasizing her royalty, kind of all round. Yeah,
0: and it's interesting that the, her eldest son would be called Henry Fitz Empress. At, yes, at, at least at at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, as you suggest, there th- things have been, uh, there events have been eventing uh, while she was away in the emperor, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Henry the First is looking at the wreckage of all his um, carefully laid plans. What, yes. how, why, how, and why?
1: Okay, Henry um, the First and his queen Edith Matilda only had two children. Henry um, had lots of illegitimate children as well, which we might talk about in a bit. But they kind of didn't count. He had two legitimate children with his wife, one son, one daughter. So the plan is the son's going to inherit everything, England and Normandy. The daughter's going to make a strategic marital alliance. Everything's going to be fine. Mm. So the, the daughter part of it was fine. She's off married to the empire and the emperor and Henry's getting good reports. And meanwhile, his son, William, uh, known as uh, William Adeline, to, so as not to get confused with William Cleto, who was Robert Curthose's son, because they were about the same age, Um, And anyone in this story who's not called Henry or Matilda is called William. Um, So he has been brought up to rule. He's been associated with his father's rule since he was about 10. His names have been appearing on um, charters and grants. People have given homage to him. There's no question at all that he is going to be the next king. Um, And then in November 1120, when Henry and his court had been in Normandy and took ship to go back to England, the ship that was carrying William Adeline, um, along with various other people, sank with the loss of all lives on board, apart from one um, butcher. Not quite sure what a butcher was doing on board (laughs) the ship, but he survived um, to tell the tale, but everyone else was lost. And suddenly, all Henry, King Henry's plans have come crashing down because he's invested everything in this one son and now he's gone and he was only 17 he was technically married to a girl who was nine um but they obviously didn't have any children and and that's that henry's been building his whole career on the fact that he might have seized the throne in slightly unorthodox manner but that he's gonna leave everything um, to his son by hereditary right, and now he, he doesn't have a son,
0: and he's going to consolidate the Normandy and England together, and make yeah,
1: it... he's going to consolidate Normandy and England. William Adelin's going to, you know, have all of it, and and that's going to be that. Um, and and it's just completely wrecked. Okay. I mean, the devastation as well as the personal loss, the the political losses as well were just extreme.
0: We and we should point out. I mean, this Normandy is um, immensely rich. It's mm-hmm. very well organized. This is yeah. wh- why. William the Conqueror have been able to take England is because Normandy is is a very, it's a powerful European kingdom at the time.
1: Yeah, because he had the resources to be able to, yeah.
0: And when you add England, uh, which might be at the end of the world, so far as Italians are concerned, um, but it's a rather large kingdom compared to other parts of Europe. And so, Mm -hmm. and if you run it in the good Norman style, uh, Mm -hmm. with this increasingly sophisticated bureaucracy that other people haven't yet adapted um, mm-hmm. well then you've got another wealthy kingdom and now you, you put two of them together you've got yourself a real center of power um, yeah. which the emperor would love to have um, yeah. but doesn't uh, so this is this is Henry the first uh, his, his dream is, is something quite grand and mm-hmm. now it's been taken away from him but he does not want to give up the dream um, and that's where Matilda comes back in
1: yes so um, Henry okay so uh, soon after the the disaster of, of the White Ship in which his son drowned, Henry took what was probably the most obvious course of action in the circumstances and married again because he was he was a widower by this stage. So he married to a young lady who was about half his age and took her everywhere with him, just expecting that you know he would be able to produce another son. Hmm. Um, but five years went by and this didn't happen and he realised he was going to have to consider his options. So he's got various options. The person who most people assume he's going to name as his heir is his nephew, William Cleto, who is the son of Robert Curthouse, who by now has been in Henry's jail for nearly 20 years. And William Cleto is in his early 20s and he's fit and he's healthy and he's the eldest son of the eldest son of William the Conqueror, so people sort of see the throne as his by right. But Henry desperately doesn't want to do this because it's going to open a whole can of worms, because effectively you could say, well, hang on, if William Cleto is your heir, because he's the eldest son of the eldest son of William the Conqueror, why isn't he the king already? So Henry wants to avoid this, so he puts the question of William Cleto to one side. That leaves him with um, various options. He does have, as I mentioned earlier, quite a large family of illegitimate children, at least 18 illegitimate children, Wow. The, the eldest of whom is a son uh, called Robert, uh, known to posterity as Robert of Gloucester, because he was the Earl of Gloucester. And he's very well regarded. He's been Henry I's loyal man. He's fought for him. He's commanded his armies. And, you know, there was possibly some thought that Henry could, could name him. I mean, after all, William the Conqueror had been illegitimate. Mm-hmm. But the church had really tightened up its rules on marriage in the intervening time and if if Henry did want to name an illegitimate son as his heir he was really going to have to do some fast talking and and probably get into conflict with the church which again probably isn't what he wants. Um, so that leaves him with uh, one child of his own, Matilda or the possibility of leaving the throne to one of his nephews because he has a sister called Adela who has a number of sons, among them Theobald of Blois and his younger brother, Stephen, of whom we will hear more in Mm. due course. Mm. But Henry has a marked preference to be succeeded by a child of his own, not a a nephew. Um, And so he decides that um, his heir is going to be his daughter, Matilda. And this is kind of incredible it's 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 so unprecedented that people just don't really know how to react yeah that he's naming he's got all these different choices and yet he's naming a woman as his heir
0: he re- um, he really wants to establish him his family his immediate family as yes. the royal family it's yes, really that's quite right. striking um and it's it's also striking i mean just thinking of the, people don't understand that william uh, the conqueror was illegitimate except that mm-hmm. that we're using a term that didn't apply when he became uh, that's all these cultural customs of legitimation mm-hmm. and primogeniture are in the in the midst of flux at this time it's really quite fascinating
1: yeah we tend to look at how things were later on and sort right. of retrospectively cast that back but yeah, yeah not, neither primogeniture or, or nor illegitimacy were uh, you know were not as important at that time as they would be later on and
0: and and, and so henry is actually taking it a step further and then trying to really change a a, cult, a cultural guardrail by putting a woman on the throne um mm-hmm. it's it's almost it's too much it's uh, it's yet another uh cultural change in addition to all these other ones that are going on um yeah and it's it's uh so <clears throat> he also make, makes her sure Um, he has everyone swear allegiance to her uh, Mm -hmm. in his presence. Um, Is she married off by this time? Uh,
1: Not yet, no. So she is um, at this stage widowed. The emperor had died in 1125 and she had turned down various requests of marriage in Germany because um, basically what's happening in England and Normandy now is a much better bet. Um, And she she returned to Normandy And in 1126, she and Henry were back in England, and that is when um, Henry got all the barons to swear allegiance to her. And among the men who swore allegiance to her were her half-brother, Robert of Gloucester, and her cousin, Stephen of Blois. Hmm. Um, Now, the problem with naming a childless widow um, as your heir is that, you know, how is the dynasty going to keep going? Yeah. So... Naturally, part of the deal of of Henry naming Matilda as his heir is that she has to get married again because she has to have children, because otherwise, what's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, we're just going to be in the same position again. And, you know, possibly as an empress and a widow, Matilda might have felt that she could have a bit of a say this time in who she was going to get married to. Um, But Henry wasn't having any of this, and he made the choice himself. Now, because... As we said before, geography is important. He's got quite a large area to to cover England and and Normandy. Um, The future of of Normandy is going to depend to quite a large extent on his relationship with the families who hold the lands immediately bordering Normandy. Um, And so he's had his eye for a while on the family of Anjou. Uh, Now, the the count of Anjou was called Fulk. And um, Falk's daughter had been married to Henry I's late son, William Adeline. Um, she was obviously sent back to her father after William drowned. So Henry, having lost his alliance with Anjou there, decided to create another one. So he decided and Falk decided that um, Matilda would marry Falk's elder son and heir, Geoffrey of Anjou. Who is like now, 10
0: years younger. Then, yeah, but uh,
1: Matilda was was not impressed. I mean, <laughs> it, ele- 11 years, 11 and a half years, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. So um, she, at the time this was announced, was 25 and he was 13. Okay. Um, and not only is he not, you know, an emperor, he's the son of a provincial count. So this is not great. She made a bit of a fuss, and we do actually have some some evidence. We don't have any letters of her own, but we do have uh, a couple of letters that were sent to her and to her father. um, And reading them, we can sort of say that there are various bishops and archbishops telling her to shut up and not make a fuss. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, she obviously realised the position that she was in. She's been named as her father's heir, which is the most fabulous opportunity for an ambitious uh, woman, an ambitious ex-empress. But the deal comes with... You've got to get married and have children. So she had this choice of, was she going to continue to make a fuss about getting married because she didn't want to marry this youth? Um, or is she going to prioritize her political and career ambitions? Mm-hmm. Um, and she did. So she was married to Geoffrey.
0: Um, so to move forward, I mean, they never seemed to have particularly liked each other. Uh, but, I think that's
1: probably an understatement, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a ge- a genial understatement. But eventually she did get pregnant. Um, she
1: did, and yeah. And
0: she had a uh, couple sons. She uh, did.
1: She had a son called Henry um, in 1133 and one called Geoffrey the following year in 1134. So King Henry of England now has two legitimate grandsons. So this is great. Mm-hmm. Because I think probably his... his his long-term plan was probably almost, if he could live long enough, to bypass Matilda altogether and leave the throne directly to his grandson. Sure. But, of course, this didn't happen because, you know, he's getting on a bit by now. He's in his 60s, which, you know, for a man who's spent a lot of his life on horseback and, and all the rest of it is is getting on a bit. Um, and, in fact, at the point... That he died, and I hope that I'm not jumping too far ahead of myself here, he died in 1135, at which point the elder of his grandsons, Henry, was only two years old.
0: So, Henry I dies Mm -hmm. suddenly at a hunting lodge in Normandy. um, That's
1: correct, yeah. And
0: uh, he's far from London. Matil- yes. Matilda, this is extremely important, is pregnant. Yeah. And she's yes. is she in confinement by that time or
1: she's not. She's in the early stages of pregnancy. So again, we can only speculate, but she was, if we if we calculate how pregnant she was, she was in the peak stage of pregnancy for sickness. And we can't tell whether she was sick or not at this distance, but it might have been it might have been a factor. What was certainly a factor was that she had actually nearly died. Um when she gave birth to her second son, Geoffrey. And, you know, this is a... We're talking life or death here. Yes. So, you know, she does need to be careful. Um, and the the other very important factor is geography. Yep. So Henry has died in Normandy, um, which is, you know, not particularly close to London, but Matilda is another 200 miles further away because she's right down at this point in Anjou. So even... I mean, assuming, a, you know, a man on a fast horse or relay of horses, it was December, which isn't great for travelling, she probably didn't even find out that her father was dead until about a fortnight after it had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, by which time, you know, everyone had, you know, they, she'd been gazumped. And,
0: and- by, by whom and how?
1: Right. So, as we mentioned earlier, um, King Henry I had a sister called Adela, who had a number of sons. Now, the eldest son, interestingly, she had put to one side when he was a child. He he was called William, and there was there's a few vague references in sources to him being. Um, they use the word deficient, which is certainly not a word I would I would use now. But he was known throughout his life as William the Simple. So um, it's possible that he was disabled in some way that we don't understand. Um, And she put him to one side. So that left three sons, Theobald, who inherited his father's county of Blois in France, Stephen, who inherited no lands from his father, but was given the county of Mortain by Henry I, because he he came to court um, during the reign of Henry I, and the youngest brother, Henry, who is gonna be important later on, who is a monk. So there is some debate, okay, despite the fact that everyone has sworn oaths to support Matilda, there is no rush at all to acclaim her or anything like that. Instead, all these barons just sit around pontificating about, Ooh, who should we choose as the king? And... Um, the barons of Normandy eventually decided that they would offer the duchy of Normandy to Theobald of Blois because he was the the eldest of the king's nephews but even as they were discussing that and making the offer to him news arrived that Stephen had taken initiative and had already got to England and had himself crowned he he was the he benefited from an extraordinary series of, of fortunate coincidences okay when he when he heard of Henry the First's death he was in Boulogne mm-hmm. which was the quickest place for a crossing of the channel despite the fact that it was December he got a really fair wind and got straight across to England he went straight for Winchester which is on the south coast which is where the Treasury was and Winchester happened to be where his brother Henry was the bishop <laughs> So he, he seized the royal treasury um, and then he rode for London where he happened to have really great ties because his wife was the Countess of Boulogne who controlled a lot of the trade route with London and they were very happy to have him. And he had himself crowned king, all before Matilda even knew that her father was dead. And we, to come back to the point about coronations, once Stephen has got this crown on his head, he's the king. hmm and it happened. It was a very small coronation. You know, there were only about three people there, but it was done in Westminster Abbey by the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, you you can't you can't argue with that. He he was the king.
0: So in in many ways, the, the Archbishop is also part of the coup. I mean, he, it's his his assent is really important to
1: Stephen. Yes, and he actually did raise with Stephen the question of the fact that he had sworn an oath to support. Matilda's claim okay so if primogeniture isn't all that important swearing an oath really is Mm -hmm. um so when we talk about Stephen being a usurper it's not necessarily because it was because he wasn't the next candidate with primogeniture it was because he'd sworn an oath to uphold somebody else's and then they had he had to do a lot of fast talking and there was a rigmarole where they produced some a surprise witness in inverted commas who claimed to have been at henry i's deathbed and claimed that henry had overturned this oath and freed everyone from it on his deathbed um which sounds a bit fishy to me and sounded a bit fishy to people at the time as well um but it was enough to convince the archbishop because the archbishop was also persuaded by bishop henry of winchester who was stephen's brother that it would be in the best interests of the peace and prosperity of the kingdom to have stephen crowned quickly um and so he was and you know i would love to have been a well not love really but it would have been as a biographer it would have been great to have an actual source or an eyewitness description of matilda's reaction when she heard this news um but there is nothing, there is no source. So, you know, but, all we can do is sort of extrapolate that she probably wasn't very pleased.
0: But there is something really important um, that we can extrapolate. And that, it, it, and what, what's extraordinary is it should be all over. It's checkmate. Um, Stephen's done it, it's a remarkably efficient coup. Um, mm-hmm. And there the story should end. Mm hmm. But it, does, it should. But yeah. it doesn't, and this is the real inflection point, because Matilda is a remarkable person, and she yeah. refuses to allow it to happen. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, then begins to act. And mm-hmm. one of the, the sort of the things about this biography, and like a lot of medieval biographies where you're thin on sources, we don't know what they're thinking, but we know what they did. Yes. Um, And Matilda is an actor. She is an agent. She imposes herself on events. Um, So how does she manage to, let's just get, let's take her from this moment into her entry into England. I mean, what does she do and how does she do it?
1: Okay. So the first thing that she's got to do is to get her current pregnancy and birth out of the way because there's no point her trying to claim her rights if she's going to be riding around and then end up dying in childbirth mm-hmm. so um, in june 1136 so this is six or seven months after king henry's death um, she gives birth to a third son who is called william and she recovers she spends a couple of months recovering from the birth um, and then She's ready. She's ready to go, right? She's She's got three sons. So, I mean, this is a really strong hand, if you like. I mean, I, I we use the chess analogy, but if you talk about cards, she's got a really strong hand because she's got, as well as hereditary right from her father, she's got three sons. Yep. Um. So, while she has been pregnant and immobilised, her husband has not been kicking his heels, right? They did not get on. There's no question that personally they were not suited to each other. But by the time they'd had their three sons, they could agree on one thing, and that was that they both had ambitions for their sons. Mm -hmm. And that even though they might not like each other, they could find in that a common goal and work towards it. So um, Geoffrey had invaded southern Normandy and was starting to make a little bit of headway. Um, and as soon as Matilda recovered from her pregnancy, we actually have a recorded instance of her riding with troops to, um, to bring them to Geoffrey's to aid when he was at a siege, um, which is, you know, quite an unusual thing for a woman to be doing. But she perhaps felt that, you know, she'd been kicking her heels long enough and now she'd had this baby. She was going to get out there and do something. But they didn't make an awful lot of headway to start with because they didn't have enough resource. Okay, Stephen has got the whole of the English and Norman treasury um, in his camp. Um, and Matilda and Geoffrey have got the resources of the counties of Anjou and Maine, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not as much. So we have a bit of a stalemate until another player appears on the scene. And this is somebody we mentioned earlier. His name's Robert, Robert of Gloucester and he is Matilda's half-brother because he's the eldest illegitimate son of Henry I. Now, under Henry I, he'd been very well regarded. You know, he was illegitimate, but he was the king's son. You know, he had authority, he had influence. And when Stephen came to the throne, he was not unnaturally very suspicious of Robert. He was suspicious of Robert's position as the old king's son. He was suspicious of Robert's influence. And they really didn't get on. And Robert found his um, influence and holdings just gradually being chipped away and, and waning. And he decided in 1138, so this is about two and a half years after Henry I's death, that he is going to be much better off with his sister on the throne than with Stephen on the throne. So he... I mean, he's such an honourable man, instead of just changing sides and not telling anyone, he actually sends a formal letter to Stephen saying, I'm renouncing my homage to you. And everyone's like, oh, for goodness sake, you know. Um, But you know, that's the sort of guy that Robert was. And he throws all his support behind Matilda. Now, he's a very rich man. He's got big holdings in England and he's got big holdings in Normandy. So at a stroke, Matilda has now got a clear path from where she is in southern Normandy all the way up to the Norman coast. She's got a path right up through friendly lands. Um, so she takes it. She and Robert make plans and Geoffrey... And, and and the plan is that Geoffrey is going to stay in Normandy and um, continue his work there while Matilda and Robert will sail for England. And they, this is what they do. Mm. Matilda leaves all three of her children behind. They're then aged about six, five and two or three. Um, and she and Robert get on a ship and they sail for England.
0: So it's important to this to Matilda that she not be seen as a rebel. She is the monarch. Um, Yes. The rebel is on the throne Mm -hmm. illegitimately. Uh, When she's in England, how does she show herself as as the actual queen of England?
1: Yeah, well, she does this in uh, various uh, ways, both uh, practical and symbolic. So to start with, um, she lodges in England at her brother Robert's castle, which is in Bristol. But she is then being positioned, if you like, as Robert's guest. And this is, this is not what she wants. So she moves away from there to the castle of Gloucester, which is one that is owned by the crown. So she's now, although it's only a Bristol to Gloucester, actually isn't very far, mm. but symbolically it's very important because rather than being her brother's guest, she is now um, a person of royal authority residing in a royal castle. And she continues with um, with this by basically acting like a monarch. She has coins minted that, that have her likeness on, and she dispenses patronage and grants of land and titles as though she is the monarch, because this, this positioning is crucial. It's no good being a rebel against... Stephen's kingship, because that implies that Stephen's kingship is somehow legitimate. Mm -hmm. Whereas what she's saying is that actually I've been the monarch all along, um, and he shouldn't be here. And this this positioning actually reminds a lot of the barons that A, she's Henry I's daughter, true legitimate daughter, and and also that um, they swore oaths to uphold her rights. And a lot of them aren't terribly impressed with Stephen anyway, because he's not a great king. You know, it was it was quite easy to seize the crown. Actually, keeping it um, is proving more more difficult. And so barons who are who are disaffected with with Stephen's rule kind of suddenly remember this this oath that they all took hmm. ten years earlier, um, and say, oh well, you know, we we had to submit to Stephen because we had no choice at the time. But actually, this is the rightful cause. And and people start drifting over to her, but crucially not really enough to swing the balance. The balance is very fine.
0: And it remains that way for a long time. And that's, yes. that's why this civil war goes on for, for how long does it go?
1: Uh, well, I mean, Depen- we, Depending how we count. Uh, yeah, depending how we count on whether we count it from, if we count it from Henry's, King Henry's death, rather than Matilda's invasion, we're talking 19 years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, a long time to, to have all this going on.
0: Now, you um, point out that it's only in the 19th century that this period is called the Anarchy. Um, yes. It's, um, But it doesn't sound all that great based on the, some of the, the, the chroniclers. Um, it was not a good thing to be a peasant or a yeoman in the south of England.
1: No, it wasn't. I mean, ordinary people, of course, had absolutely no say in any of this. There was no democratic mechanism at all okay so um they could be called up to fight they could be mistreated they could have their crops destroyed or or stolen um by members of both sides and and sometimes what happened is that actually stephen had named somebody earl of a county and matilda had named somebody else earl of the same county and so these poor you know, common folk getting caught in the middle might be called up to provide uh, resources or to fight for, for either side. Um, and yeah, the, the chroniclers do um, talk about this quite a lot. You know, they lament these awful things that were going on because, of course, be- because there was no real um, imposing authority at the top, if you like, like there had been under Henry the I, um, some people were taking the opportunity to, you know, have private wars or you know little vendettas of their own things like that Mm -hmm. and of course the common people got caught in the middle of that but on the other hand there were quite large parts of the country that that weren't really touched by this war and people you know were getting on with their lives working and and paying their taxes and you know in, in many respects a lot of those common folk i think probably didn't really care who was on the throne right as long as they could get on with their lives in in
0: peace. Now we, I, we're already way over the time for this podcast that oh, okay. we n- normally Sorry. take. No, 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 no. Sorry, <laughs> right. uh, not your fault. Uh, but I just, I, I don't. So I don't want to fight the entire, um, all the, okay. event, all the events of the anarchy or whatever we yeah. should call this. But I do want to focus on a couple of them on, yeah. on three things. One would be the sort of the where it seems that Matilda has won everything. And Mm -hmm. then yet it still slips out of her hands. And that's after she captures Stephen at the Battle of Lincoln. Yes. Uh, And she is able to enter, at least get to Westminster. Um, Mm -hmm. What, could you describe that? And, And then what actually went wrong?
1: Okay, so um, briefly, there had been a a battle at Lincoln early in 1141, uh, which Matilda did not fight in person, because this is one of the downsides of being a female monarch, but Robert of Gloucester commanded her forces, and Stephen was captured um, and taken to Matilda, and she had him put in custody. Um, I mean, this is one of the reasons, just as an aside, why pitched battles were actually very rare in the Middle Ages, because you could just lose everything in one day, as, as Stephen did. Um, And so now the situation has changed. With him in prison, she is now the only source of royal authority um, in the country. And she manages to get the church to acknowledge this, the church, of course, being a very influential institution. Um, And the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, again, has a few scruples. Tells Matilda he can't crown her because he'd sworn an oath to Stephen. And she actually sent him to Stephen and said, "Well, ask him then." <laughs> um, and, and the Archbishop of Canterbury actually went to Stephen in prison, and Stephen just, who'd obviously kind of given up hope really at this point, released him from his oath and said, "Fine." So uh, Matilda then travelled to Westminster and um, was ready. Was literally on the eve of her coronation. Um, And it all kind of went wrong. So there are two factors to this. One is um, that the barons and some of the chroniclers had supported Matilda because they didn't really like Stephen. And they saw Matilda as good opposition to Stephen. But once this is now, this is really happening, and they're really going to have a female monarch, and they're really going to have to submit themselves to a woman, they panic. And the chroniclers write some very nasty things about her which are explicitly gendered, okay? It's all things like... So some of the things you hear about female politicians now, you know, she walks too confidently. She doesn't talk with the right tone of voice. Mm-hmm. You know, she's um, she's arrogant. It's like, well, hang on. She's just become the monarch and she's acting like one. You wouldn't say that about a man. Um, and And this... You know gets under people's skin um and the other factor that nobody has considered is that stephen has a wife um who is queen of england um Unnamed. and she also called <laughs> matilda so confusing mm. yeah i know i know so um um she raises she you know, doesn't sit back in this, you know, doing her embroidery. She takes it on. She raises troops throughout Kent. She's got a lot of friends in London. She encourages the Londoners to rebel. Um, And uh, Matilda, our Matilda, is forced to flee from Westminster by an angry mob on the very eve of her coronation. And... The disappointment just must have been. She was so close to it.
0: Yes, so <laughs> close. But uh second point is this keeps on going. Uh, this is what year is that when she her
1: this eleven forty one. Yeah, this eleven forty one. Yeah,
0: and it keeps on going.
1: It goes it, on, and on and on and on. She's still. She's still in. um a decent position because she's still got Stephen in her custody, but then later in 1141, there's a bit of a disaster and her brother, Robert of Gloucester, who commands her armies for her is captured by Stephen's queen, Matilda. And there is no option at all, but to exchange them for each other. Yeah. So they're both freed and the whole thing starts again.
0: The, um, b- but of great importance was that Geoffrey. um, who might have been a bit of a prat, was nevertheless successful in Normandy and deprived uh, Stephen of all the revenue that he could have gotten from the lands in France.
1: Yeah, exactly. So... um, It's a bit of check. Geoffrey has had long-held designs on, on Normandy Um, And he uses the excuse of, well, this is my wife's and my son's inheritance. And while Matilda has been engaged in this war in England, Geoffrey has been ignoring that completely. And he's been methodically conquering his way all the way across Normandy. Um, And in the mid 1140s, he's actually recognised as the Duke of Normandy. So not only does that take all those uh, revenues and resources away from Stephen, but it also means the barons have got to make a choice because there are a lot of barons who hold lands in England right. and in Normandy, and they can't have Stephen as their overlord in one place and Geoffrey and Matilda in the other. They have to jump one way or the other, um, and more of them do then decide to um, come over to Matilda. And she, by this stage, has has sort of realised, I think she's internalised the fact that she isn't going to sit on the throne or in her own right. But while she's been doing all this, her sons have been growing up. Um, and so she's able then at this point to say, OK, I'm not fighting for my own rights. I'm fighting for the rights of my son, Henry, who is the true heir to Henry the I. And this is the catalyst. You know, all these people who didn't like Stephen were a bit about, you know, really they should have supported the descendants of Henry the first, but they didn't really want to because she was a woman and she wasn't likable enough, had a great excuse to go, oh, well, you know, we, we best fight for the rights of young Henry then. And lots of people came over to his side. So by the time he's about 15, mm-hmm. he is seen as the true and legitimate heir to Henry the first.
0: And one of the important the, the important features of the story are is not just strategic marriage, but also strategic marriage to women who have not yet produced a child <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then suddenly do. So Henry, the, the future Henry II, um, yeah. I don't know his title at the time, but he's Prince Henry. Um, he makes a tremendous coup of marrying the cast-off Queen of France, uh, yes. Eleanor of Aquitaine.
1: That's right. Who's
0: only produced two daughters over a... Yeah. a about fifteen years. Fifteen years. And uh, not only is she the heiress to a stupendous kingdom of uh, of its own Aquitaine, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden she starts producing. He marries her, and yeah. she starts producing boys one after the other. Uh, to, yes. To further and which is a further um, point that the secession is secure. Uh, yes. For the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Henry, uh, young Henry, uh, we're moving on a bit here because yeah, he are. didn't marry till he was a, a little bit later than his. He was still in his teens when he married. But he was about eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. Yeah. He starts producing sons, and of course, he's also got two younger brothers. Right. Um. So this dynasty that Henry the first had envisaged and and never lived long enough to see has has now come to fruition because mm-hmm. there's all there's, there's male heirs everywhere. Um, and this gives, you know, all, all the barons the, you know, the excuse that they they needed, really. Stephen has got two sons as well. But the elder of them, Eustace, is very, very erratic, violent man who's not very popular with the barons. And the second one is, I'm sorry to say it, but a complete non-entity. Mm. So um, Stephen is kind of you know, he's kind of hoist by his own petard, really. He tries to say to everyone, look, but I'm the king, so my son Eustace should be the king next. <laughs> um, but that sort of negates his own argument because they're saying, well, if if, if if that's the most important thing, then you shouldn't be king in the first place because young Henry should be king.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so they end up having to have this sort of political fudge if you like we get to 1154 everyone is absolutely fed up with the war because it's been going on for 19 years and stephen and young henry are facing off against each other in some really shocking weather across a river that neither of them can cross because it's too high and all of the barons on both sides just refuse to fight they're like we're not doing this anymore we've had enough talk to each other and they are forced to make terms with each other and what to cut a long story short what they end up with is that stephen will remain the king for the rest of his life but he will then be succeeded not by his own son eustace but by matilda's son henry Hmm. um but this is weird because you need to have a legal justification for it because you can't you can well hang on if it's primogeniture then that wouldn't work and if it's not then this wouldn't work so they come up with this fiction um, that Stephen quote adopts Henry as his son, and and says, "I'm going to leave the throne to you, but you know you're you're my son, and I will treat you as my son in, in all things," which is lovely for Stephen and lovely for Henry, but it's a bit of a slap in the face for Matilda.
0: Yeah, so, that she's
1: done all this fighting, and now her son's recognised as the heir in his because he's Stephen's son.
0: Well, but none, none, nonetheless, um, the reason all this happens is because of her act of will.
1: Yes, uh, exactly.
0: And because of her forcefulness over 19 years.
1: To- yeah, if she'd sat back in 1135 and 1136 and gone, this is this is too difficult. Stephen's already got the throne. I've got no money. I'm pregnant. I'm hundreds of miles away. I may as well just give up and be content with being the Countess of Anjou. Mm-hmm. You'd never have heard of Henry II.
0: No. Uh, but yet her success means, that, as you said, that she's written out of her own story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, so in later life, uh, Henry the uh, would sometimes take her advice: don't invade, yeah. don't invade Ireland.
1: Don't invade Ireland is uh, always good advice. Yeah. yeah,
0: and then he also did not, as in, uh, don't, uh, don't appoint Thomas Becket uh, to be yes. Archbishop. Um But she and she, there's some those letters that you referred to. There's a, some fantastic letters uh, where you can yeah. really, you can really see her personality in between the lines.
1: Oh, I just—I wish through. more correspondence of hers had survived. Oh, she was such you know, a I great wish because we've just got these two or three letters, but you can really see it. I mean, she's really, she writes Sir Thomas Beckett, I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> and she's just, she's just telling him where to get off. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, it's it's great, and I just wish we had more examples of her own words like that because, as a biographer, you know, what you want is your subject's own words. And, and, you know, I just didn't have that. But those those letters are just fantastic from, from towards the end of her life.
0: When she dies, you have, there's an arresting poem, I think from a Norman chronicler. Um, yes. And there's one line I wrote down, it really sticks in my head still. For she gave him his crown. Yeah. And she was his mother. Okay, the, yeah. sec- the second part of the, the clause, the second clause is understandable. But I just love, she gave him his crown.
1: Yes, that's exactly, I mean,
0: that she's referring to, Henry, lot the, about referring to how, Henry II's
1: mourning is what, is what the Chronicle is referring to, but yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, Henry II had, you know, as we know many fine qualities, he was energetic and he was powerful and he was, you know, all the rest of it as he, as he went on to show in later life. But I think the thing that's been really kind of written out is that he would never have been in that position in the first place if it hadn't been for Matilda. If he'd had to start any claim to the throne from, you know, from the position of being the son of the Count of Anjou in provincial France, rather than, you know, coming over to England with a huge base of supporters already in place because of what his mother had done, it, it could have all turned out very differently.
0: Mm-hmm. It, there's, um, Matilda strikes me as such an important transitional figure. Um, mm mm-hmm. There's a, a way in which she uh, reaches back to much earlier in the Middle Ages, and then mm-hmm. is looking forward towards uh, much later. Um, it's she, we people have made a, a great deal of Henry II's Angevin Empire.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: it wouldn't exist without her. No, uh, which, that's
1: entirely correct, and she's been too easily overlooked.
0: Right. It was, and it was definitely sort of her father's ambition, and and, and certainly her own to have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a foot on either side of, of the channel. Uh, yeah. And and of course that um that will last until 14:30. Uh yes. that, that sort of dream or that sort of idea that is what an uh, a, a, an English monarch curious enough is also a, a monarch of of part of France and that's just, mm-hmm. that's just the way it is.
1: Yeah. Um and yeah as i say that just wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for her and i think because Henry II went on to do so many great deeds. And because he had this, you know, fantastically interesting private life and feuds with his wife and sons and things like that, I think people have tended to, to concentrate on um, on him. Um, and, you know, people sort of skip, oh, yeah, William the Conqueror and Henry I, and then sort of almost skip to Henry II in their minds without, without thinking... It's very easy in hindsight to look back and go well yeah he was Henry the first grandson so he became the king um without realizing that at the time that was in no way obvious or inevitable
0: my guest today has been Catherine Henley she's the author of Matilda Empress Queen and Warrior Catherine thanks so much for being with us today
1: thank you very much for having me